All right, your host here, Austin again, here with my good friend, Megan. We're going to drop some knowledge of stuff that we feel like you should know about me off the podcast because she knows me outside of the podcast realm. And she is a Patreon member, so she gets to do one of these and ask me these awesome questions. But uh, Megan, first off, guess what I'm wearing right now? Um, a cutoff shirt. <laughs> You're good. That's what I was going to say. G- gym shorts and tennis shoes. You don't have to say it all. I was just going to say no sleeves. <laughs> no, definitely no sleeves. 100% no sleeves. Because no um, Megan dropped that knowledge before. So if y'all are wondering, again, I, I like to have the sleeves off so it won't slow down my typing speed. Again, <laughs> the things I do for this podcast. Uh, all right, Megan. So what's something else that people should know about me? I guess, you know, in the world of podcasting and radio, you don't really get a visual on mm-hmm. the speaker. I think people should know you're pretty tall. I don't know if you sound like a tall person. <laughs> I think you sound like a I think you sound like an average height person. How tall are you, Austin? I'm six two. Oh, I guess it's not that tall. So, sorry, <laughs> I, I I disappointed you. <laughs> I mean it's tall compared I'm five six on a good day. So you're okay. pretty tall. Yeah. Um also Austin is a resident of Florida. I don't think I've ever seen you wear a pair of flip-flops. I don't like wearing flip-flops. I've done it in the past. It's because I remember riding bikes before with flip-flops. And then if you've done that and rode bikes with flip-flops and scratched your toes on the concrete, have you ever done that on the street? Um, that pain is yeah, like no other. It hurts. So, you know, just scraping your... Fair enough. I, yeah. So that, that's actually the reason why. <laughs> but that's, that's a good call that's too. That's a good reason. Yeah. I, can't right. I was like... <laughs> I'm very observant, but I'm, I was thinking back. I'm like, is that weird that I noticed that he's never worn flip-flops? No, I, li- I like that. That's funny. I would never have thought that you would have thought of that too to ask me. So. <laughs> also, Austin's home this Christmas was like beautiful, probably. <laughs> no joke, a million lights. And his reaction to the compliments we showered him with was to go out and buy all the on-sale lights <laughs> right after Christmas. So he probably has a million more. So I think he's gonna like knock out the power for the entire neighborhood next year. Well, thank you, Megan. Well, let me give everyone some tips on that. So if you go the day after Christmas to Home Depot, Target, wherever, then they have the lights on sale for like 50 to 70% off. So, you know, I'm a value guy. That's what makes entrepreneurs entrepreneurs. You got to find good value. (laughs) Very fiscally responsible of you. Yes. Well, I've learned to do that by not making money on the podcast. So You have to be frugal. Yes. I was just like a dog with a bone, you know? I was just like, I'm going to make it work. I was just so focused because I knew it was possible. And I knew if it was possible for them, it was possible for me. To me, I think what kept me motivated when I didn't have the community and I didn't have the following was it became like a game. Over the course of all this, I was really learning, and I think this is the biggest piece of advice that I can give to any entrepreneur is. What's a healer? I mean, a healer is someone who helps someone else facilitate transformation and healing in their life. So I can become a healer? I mean, if you want to, Austin, (laughs) yes. I want to be a healer. Yes. You know, I think we all start like healing. I'm trying to heal people with their businesses. Hi, I'm Brett Larkin. I'm 34 years old. I am in the Seattle, Washington area and my company Uplifted Yoga. We virtually train yoga teachers. So we both certify yoga teachers and then we have many courses for people who are exploring yoga as well as enthusiast yoga community, like a membership site. 
Did you start off doing this with your business or did it like transform to this online space? Well, that's a good question. I did start teaching yoga in person on the side of my corporate jobs at the time. I was very passionate about yoga. I mean, extremely passionate. You might say I'm obsessed with yoga. (laughs) I talk about it seven hours a day now and I'm still not sick of it this many years in. It definitely started physically, but like out in the world and in studios. I was always really interested in video as a medium. I had gone to screenwriting school for college and there were some required video and editing courses as part of my college curriculum. And I ended up putting my first video on YouTube. Well, I thought I was coming to YouTube late, but turns out I was actually still in the earliest wave of fitness and yoga people coming onto YouTube. I don't know if you want to start back to like when you actually got started or if we want to talk a little bit more about how you make money. When you said membership, I don't know if it's just like you're teaching people actual yoga or you're teaching yoga teachers yoga. I mean, do you want to maybe describing your current model a little bit more and then we'll talk about how it evolved? Sure. So I do both. I have what's called a freemium business model. So I have dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, and now probably actually over a thousand free videos on YouTube. I've been putting up a YouTube video every week for probably more than five years now, since 2012. So that's actually a very long time. Those are all free. They're just on YouTube. And then for people who are kind of resonating with my style of yoga and the way I'm teaching and they want to go deeper and they really want community and connection, because that's what I found my audience was really craving. I have kind of like a Netflix version of my yoga where they get everything that's on YouTube, but they also get premium content, they get courses, and they get more interaction with me and one another in a structured way. So we have book clubs, courses that dive deeper into the philosophy of yoga, challenges that are themed around specific things that are going on each year, like the summer solstice and things like that. And then for those who really decide that they love yoga so much, like I did years ago, and they want to take it to that next level, we have instructor training courses where they can be certified to teach yoga. And this is something that in the yoga community, a lot of people do just to deepen their own practice. They don't necessarily, everyone who comes and takes our courses want to have a career. Some do, and we really try to give them the tools to succeed online, which is something I'm really passionate about. But many of them are just looking for a transformation in their life. They want more yoga, they want to go deeper, and the training is a great way to do that. Well, you're speaking my language as far as putting out free content, which I've done a lot with the podcast. And then I've kind of emphasized trying to build a community. And that's kind of my next stage is like, so people can have that extra connection. And it seems like that's what you said you kind of ended up doing with what you have here with, was it called just uplifted yoga? Is that what we call it? Yep, just uplifted. So the membership's uplifted. And then the community is a huge part of the yoga teacher training as well. When I started in the yoga teacher training space, there weren't that many other offerings. But to my knowledge, I'm still the only offering that is extremely interactive and high touch. So it's not just you buy a training and watch videos like your typical online course. It's comprised of live calls, people practice teaching over Zoom, small group discussions, you get paired in partners to do things. I mean, it's really community building. And I think this is becoming more like commonplace because now everyone's using Zoom and, you know, social distancing and all these things. But back when I was doing this five plus years ago, and it was really exciting for people at the time, because if you're a mom or living in a very rural area, or maybe you're in the military, or maybe you're a lawyer, right? You're in all these situations where being part of an enthusiast community like that isn't available to you in your day-to-day life, either because of location or logistics or your job. So to be able to have that intimate a connection with like-minded yoga enthusiasts is really powerful. 
I was trying to reemphasize that I'm trying to do the same thing. I'm in the early stages of it. So I guess we can go step by step of like how you're able to grow yours, if you don't mind. But again, it's like you can put training videos out there, but I think having a community aspect is really what makes it work. I think why people would keep wanting to pay and be a part of your membership, it sounds like. Yes, definitely. I think it's the community and then also the structure, right? What I discovered very early on was, and this is why it's so important to dialogue with your students or your customers and really figure out their pain points, what they're struggling with, which I did very early with my community over live video. So I was just going live. This is before YouTube or Facebook or Instagram or anyone had live. So I had to go live on this app called Periscope, which was one of the first live video streaming apps many years ago. And I was really trying to figure out what my students wanted, what they needed, how I could go deeper with them beyond YouTube. And what I learned from a lot of them dialoguing through live video and them chatting me and asking questions was A, that they had a ton of questions about the poses. Like, you know, just putting out the free classes was not enough. It was like the tip of the iceberg. They wanted so much more information on the anatomy, on the alignment, if they were doing it right. And then the other thing they really wanted was structure and accountability. You know, for me, someone who's been doing yoga so long, it didn't occur to me that someone might need to be told what classes to do in what order. But it turns out for my ideal client or my beloved students, right, that's actually really what they needed. They needed someone to handhold them through, like do this class on Monday, do this class on Tuesday. So I started developing a lot of kind of like mini curriculums and challenges that were thematic that I knew would be interesting to them and kind of handhold them through a process. And so I'm noticing one of your specialties in your group looks to be nude yoga. Is that true? No. <laughs> Where's that coming from? I'm just kidding. I'm just trying to oh, see gosh. if we get anyone excited <laughs> who's listening. I recently started reading a book called Believe in People, not only because they're sponsoring this ad spot, but because the book is filled with compelling examples of how to solve really big problems. Believe in People by Charles Koch and Brian Hooks is the collected stories of social entrepreneurs who created uncommon solutions for the common good. A former gang leader turned peace broker in his community, an amateur athlete who created one of the most innovative recovery programs in the country. Learn what inspired them to make things better in their communities and how they're still discovering new and better ways of doing things. It's a message of hope in a time of crisis and optimism in time of division. For anyone looking around the country right now and thinking there has to be a better way, well, this book is for you. Pre-order the book today at believeinpeoplebook.com forward slash inspiration and gain access to bonus content ahead of its November 17th publication. Again, that's believeinpeoplebook.com forward slash inspiration. So hopefully, was that helpful? Yeah, this is great. This has been super helpful. This is good feedback. I love the idea of just making it clear what we do, how we do it, and then putting some customer bio information of who we've signed up. Speaking of signing up, why don't you sign up to become a Patreon member today? Go ahead, pause this episode right now, and go sign up. It'll be the best decision you've made since pressing play on this episode. All right. So I guess in general, when I was accepted the interview, I was just curious as like, okay, yoga teacher is kind of cool. She has a membership coming online. Cause I think it's not only just, you know, for me personally, but I think other people want to build communities. So it seems like you've had a successful one. So we'll dive into that. But overall, what were like your revenues in 2019 and what type of business? Is it just you? Can we get an idea of the business aspect of your online community here? Yes. I mean, when I started, it was me alone. This was a passion project. It wasn't really something I ever anticipated 
taking off the way it has. So we can definitely talk more about that if you want sort of this journey from kind of hobbyist, solopreneur to what is now multi seven figure business with employees and lots of contractors and my husband also working with me full time, at least at the moment. I mean, that's pretty cool. So you never imagined it getting to this point, or I guess your husband even working for you, right? No, never. I mean, I worked with a business coach at one point and he encouraged me to dream really big. But even when I was writing down like the dream and the vision, it felt silly almost. Most yoga teachers are struggling financially. Part of my personal mission is to try to help those teachers, you know, give them the business building and the tech skills that I've learned along the way so that they too can be entrepreneurs, that they can find success online. So I think that's another reason people are really attracted to our trainings is that, of course, it's majority yoga, but there's a lot, especially in more of the advanced trainings about stepping into this role of an entrepreneur and really taking charge of your business and your mindset, going after a target income or target impact that's exciting to you. How many members do you like currently have active? I think our membership has around 2000 people, which isn't huge. Yeah, I guess it's always about perspective. That's bigger than I thought it would be, to be honest. Yeah, you start small, you know, at first it was all about getting my first 100 members and then it becomes this journey and it just keeps growing. It's really fun and exciting. Yeah, and it looks like it's like 29 bucks a month. So if anyone's into yoga, maybe they can join and learn some stuff with you. Yes, and we have lots of things for beginners. We love beginners. In case anyone wants to check it out during the interview, is it brettlarkin.com with two Ts? Yes, brettlarkin.com, two Ts. Thank you for the overview. I appreciate that. And so do you want to reel it back to the most interesting point in your story? And then we can go chronological to how you grew this thing? Sure. I think one of the most interesting points I was reflecting on this preparing for the interview was actually when I was very young, I mean, six, seven, eight years old, my father really instilled a lot of entrepreneurial ideas in me very early. I don't think he ever used the word entrepreneurship, but he talked to me ever since I was very small about how important it was to love what you do. And he loved his line of work. He said he'd do it even if they didn't pay him. <laughs> That's how much he loved his job. What was his job? I'm curious. He worked in the news business and he was just very passionate about foreign affairs and bringing unbiased news to people back when such a thing existed, <laughs> you know, so many years ago. I know about to say, I didn't know there was such a thing. Okay, gotcha. But he just loved what he did. He loved the news. And this, I think, had a really strong impression on me that I'm only kind of really beginning to unpack and understand now in my mid-30s, you know, how powerful it was that he was always talking to me about doing what you love and having a job that you love so much that you'd do it even if you weren't paid. A lot of those ideas really, I think, stayed with me somehow. I was always interested in kind of being in charge and getting to run and have control and have creative control. I think that's something I was always interested in. So even in my first early jobs out of college, I was always kind of hustling and doing things on the side. I had a blog that was pretty successful that had nothing to do with yoga. I got some other women involved with it. I just always loved creating, creating products, creating experiences. And yoga obviously entered my life and it changed a lot of the anxiety and overwhelm that I felt as like a young 20 something, you know, I think we all have that angst. And instead of it just being this thing, it became an obsession. Like I just loved it and I wanted to share it with everyone. But I was definitely convinced that there was no way I could make a full-time living teaching yoga. Didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that, you know, most yoga teachers are independent contractors. They're not earning that much money. And I was definitely on kind of more like a corporate track. I worked for a video game company at the time. 
which was really cool because I actually kind of segued into mainly developing dance and movement games for them, like fitness, dance, and movement games. This is back when Wii and the Kinect for Xbox was all coming out. So there was like a lot of interest in that type of technology. So I actually felt really great in my career for a while because I was combining technology and my love of movement and dance. I had been a dancer my whole life. So things felt good. Then that kind of connect we fitness game bubble kind of burst and games like Farmville <laughs> sort of became like the new hot thing. So I found myself working in kind of like San Francisco startup culture. I'd been brought out there for a video game job, but I was like the fitness and dance and movement aspect was no longer like a part of my day to day. And I wasn't feeling fulfilled anymore. I wasn't feeling happy. And that's when I started teaching yoga on the side, putting my first yoga videos up on YouTube, exploring and again, with no concept of it being a business, just it felt like a creative expression, like an outlet that I needed. And what year was that? That was probably 2011, 2012. Okay. And so when did you move to San Francisco for the original job? Probably like in 2010 or something like that. Yeah. Okay. So you'd only been doing it for about a year or two and then you're like realizing you're not enjoying it as much as what you were doing before. Yeah, I was learning a lot. And I think I learned a ton that helped serve me as an entrepreneur because it was very much like lean startup culture. So a lot about fail fast and prototyping. So it was an invaluable time. I guess I just didn't feel like my whole self was being fulfilled by my job, which I think a lot of people just accept. And they're like, yeah, that's normal. But that's never what I wanted. I think a lot of because of the values my father instilled in me, or maybe it's just the way I am, but I was missing having that more creative movement or fitness aspect as part of my day-to-day -day work. Originally, I don't know if you even mentioned like where you went to school and then from where we know you ended up in San Francisco. But again, I just want to make sure that we all get an idea of your years and your movement throughout the U.S. before you actually started this. Yeah, sure. I went to New York University to Tisch School of the Arts, and I studied screenwriting and writing for television. The screenwriting and writing for television kind of segued into what my first job was, which was writing storylines for video games. So that's kind of how I got in the video game world and company. And then I actually was able to bring the movement piece in. I was actually planning on leaving the video game industry because originally I was just writing story and dialogue for video games, which was really cool. I wrote primarily video games for 13-year-old girls. That was what I worked on. It was super fun. Then games for women as well, but a lot of games for the tween market, like 8 to 12-year-olds, 8 to 12-year-old girls. It felt like something was missing, but then when we and Connect and all the fitness dance technology came out, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. And I was in the perfect position to be able to sort of segue and get promoted because a lot of the game designers who the company already had on staff, they didn't know anything about movement. They didn't know how to work with a choreographer, for example, or design fitness routines. And I just had that background. Wow. Okay. So that worked perfectly. And then from New York, I guess, what company told you to come to San Francisco? So I worked for Ubisoft, which is one of the biggest video game companies in the world. I started in New York. I went with them to Quebec, Canada. And then I got recruited out by a different video game company to go to San Francisco. That company no longer exists. It ended up going bankrupt. <laughs> Was Ubisoft, did they do Halo? No, I don't think so. But all the Tom Clancy games. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I've seen all that. That's it. Yeah, Tom Clancy ones are big ones. And Assassin's Creed. <laughs> so then you go, you're in San Francisco, you're doing that for a couple of years. And then you kind of, as you said, the Farmville type of stuff, the non-movement game started to pick it up again. You found yourself a little bit bored and then decided to do your yoga stuff kind of on YouTube and start doing online just for fun. Yep. Just for fun. It just felt, as I said, like really a creative outlet. Like it was like something I had to do and put out there. It didn't even really occur to me that people would watch the YouTube videos. <laughs> 
crazy as it sounds. Well, then why were you putting them up just in case you thought maybe one person might benefit? To be honest, the original reason I put them up was because I had designed a sequence. You know, in yoga, we move through a series of poses, like a flow that I really liked and I wanted to remember it. I didn't want to forget it. So that was the impetus actually for filming it. it was almost like to document this sequence that I had really enjoyed. I had never even made the leap that like someone's going to view it and do the class and comment. So when that started happening, obviously I was insanely excited and blown away. Wow. Yeah. You thought you made it private, but it's actually public. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So 2011, it sounds like you're making decent money too, I guess, if you're in the video game world. Yeah. I mean, this was what was really great is because I had a corporate job. So I had a lot of financial security. I mean, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids at the time. So all my spare time, you know, I was able to focus on exploring what this was. So it was a great position to be in. From 2011, why don't you just kind of walk us through how this ended up evolving, uplifted? Yeah. So I think I started figuring out that I should post videos regularly. I mean, I remember that being a big epiphany. Like I should post, you know, every Sunday a video. I had luckily taken some online business little courses that had really encouraged the importance of an email list and growing an email list. So I did ask, I did have a very basic website that retrospect is like so embarrassing if I could look at it now, but it existed. And it mainly just was like, hey, this YouTube channel exists. And if you want to leave your email, I'll tell you when I post new classes type of thing. What was the website? So we could look in the Wayback Machine. Oh my goodness. It was just my URL. It's probably brettlarkin.com. So you could definitely go back and take a look. I used some really crazy website builder to build it too that doesn't even exist anymore. It was super wonky. I was telling this story to a group of my advanced students the other day that I actually was afraid to email everyone who was signing up. It felt like an imposition. It felt scary, which is so funny for me now because I think if I look in my email marketing software that I've sent over 90 million emails, it's like some insane number now that I've grown. But back then, like emailing people felt very frightening. It felt something that was like out of my comfort zone. And so even though people were entering the email to get these classes, I never emailed anyone because I just was too afraid. What actually ended up happening is I had some people write in and be like, I've signed up to get your free weekly class and you've never sent me an email. Is your thing working? What's wrong? So people actually started complaining. And that's when I finally got out of my own way and started sending emails. And that began, you know, my very early love affair with email marketing. I love connecting with people via email and using email as a sales channel and to connect with your ideal client, your ideal, for me, my ideal student. So I had a writing background, right? Because I went to school studying screenwriting and writing was always a strong suit for me. So I started just like putting together a very simple automated funnels and tell me if you want me to break down any of these terms for people listening, but basically where someone might opt in and I'd send them some classes and then ask if they're a beginner or ask if they're advanced and then send them some other emails. It's a lot like a, the dialogue trees I used to write when doing video games, right? Like if a person chooses X, we send them different dialogue than if they choose Y, right? So it was kind of like a lot of different things in my background started pulling together, like the writing, the game design, the obviously love of fitness and yoga. And I started getting really interested in, you know, communicating and, and emailing with folks and sharing my classes and being kind of a little bit more of my own advocate. At that point, how long did it actually take for you to, I know you said people started emailing you, right? To, hey, I'm not getting this free course. I'm sure other people have this hurdle. Even for me, I started collecting emails in the beginning, but I feel like you need at least a decent amount of emails on your list before you start even taking the time to preparing these funnels of emails. I imagine at first it was just like almost a newsletter and then it breaks down into the funnels like you're talking about. But Yes. 
I mean, yeah. How long did it take for you to actually overcome that hurdle once people started getting back to you? Once people started complaining, I got my booty into gear pretty fast because I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't want people to be upset with me. Right. So then, you know, I did, I started like a weekly newsletter, kind of what you're saying, but I pretty quickly, once I saw that emails could be automated, I started getting really excited because I was like, wow, I could be communicating with someone or sending them a class or helping them. I mean, for me, it was always about helping them, like sending them a tutorial they need if they're a beginner or whatever, while I'm sleeping. That's really, really cool. So that's what kind of broke down some of the early funnel work I started doing, which were all terrible, by the way. They weren't even like selling anything. And I didn't really have a clear, what I call now like an avatar, like a clear type of student I was trying to attract. It was kind of a mess, but at least I was flexing those early muscles of learning the skill of writing emails and putting myself out there. But we all get started somewhere. And I think it's the important part of like, once people start learning about the things you're talking about, like funnels, and it almost gets so complicated in their head, or even mine, when I start thinking is like, why am I even going to collect emails? It's, it's, you start overcomplicating it. But just like you and all these other guests that we've listened to, whether they're you know starting these email funnels or email sequences, I mean, the first step, just click the emails, like do something. You got to do some step in the beginning and you work your way up to where you've got to. It doesn't happen in the first go around, right? Correct. Yeah. With that, I mean, I'm just curious. So what was your work-life balance like for your yoga stuff you're doing on the side and then what you're doing in San Francisco at these game tech companies? Because I imagine they were probably working you hard that you have to work a lot. You know, looking back compared to my life now as a full-time CEO, founder and mother, and you know, it was easy, honestly. I mean, it's like I would put in the hours at work, but work was just work. And so my evenings and weekends were free and I do a lot of filming on the weekends. Cool. Were you doing all yourself or like, were you just all myself? Okay. Everything myself. Yes. I was the sound person, the video person, and that results in very poor quality a lot of the time. So if you want to go back and look on my YouTube channel and like my earliest uploads, you will see that, you know, stuff is out of focus. Stuff doesn't sound good. And that's really fun to do. Like even with the biggest YouTubers, people who have millions and millions of subscribers, you know, to go back, if you keep clicking back in their history, you can see some of their first uploads and it's really inspiring. And that's what I love about YouTube is because it's really transparent and you see how people grow up on the platform. And I feel like I've grown up so much on the platform. I mean, I now have videos with like three cameras and cranes and, you know, professional audio and makeup and hair. And, you know, that is definitely not where I started. And a live audience? <laughs> yeah, not yet, but that's next. It's funny because that reminds me of there's we had an episode with a lady from Darn Good Yarn. I don't know. Have you heard of that yarn? No. I guess people use it for knitting or whatever. But she was one of the first YouTubers that started kind of just documenting what she was doing. You know, in case anyone's wondering, it's episode 133. Yeah, go look at because you can easily filter to your first videos, which I plan on doing after our interview. You just go ahead, go to earliest, you know, make it very simple. But she was like, yeah, I was just getting drunk on wine and showing people how I make the yarn. And, for, and you can go back and see. And it's funny just to see what people were like in the early days. And that's what I'm saying. It's always an involvement. Like you evolve to what you become. You know, so anyone who's getting started, don't be thinking you need the most fashionable thing to get started, the best camera, whatever. Just get started is the most important thing for practice, at least. Yes, you really don't. And what's crazy is I haven't taken any of those videos down. And some students in one of my trainings the other week, they like found one of them and they were like, this class, this sequence is so good. And it's like one of my fifth videos that I ever put out. There's a lot of things wrong with it, you know, in terms of quality of the video and the audio. 
But you know, what was shining through is my passion, I think in that video and my unique way of doing something. And to everyone listening, it's like, you have that as well, right? Like your unique viewpoint. And like, if it's really special, that's going to shine through like some not so great camera angles or whatever, you know, people will see that. So those videos still do well, which is what's crazy. Yeah. I'm sure people relate to you more too, because they're like, okay, Brett's a regular person too, you know? Yes. Maybe she's super yoga woman now, but even back in the day, like, okay, I can relate to her now. So how long did it take for you to start making this a business? Because you said you basically started in 2011, kind of uploading these to YouTube. Yes, it wasn't a business. I never thought of it as a business. It was just sort of my passion project. The big change came probably maybe 2014, I want to say. I was invited to a conference at YouTube. I had worked my way up to getting, I think, around 30,000 subscribers. YouTube has some wonderful system. I don't really know, but they email you and they invite you if you have enough people to come to these like creator events that they host at YouTube, which is really amazing. So I got invited to the one in San Bruno, which is pretty close to San Francisco. I was so excited and I had to take the day off work or something to be able to do it, but it was super important to me to do it. So I did. It's one of those days that changed my life forever because up to that point, I'd never met anyone else who was doing YouTube. And I go to this creator event at the San Bruno YouTube office, and there were literally hundreds, hundreds of people. I was one of the smallest channels there. I don't even know how I got invited. It was like most people there had 80,000 subscribers, 100,000 subscribers. You know, they were much bigger than me. I got to like network and talk to them. And what I started figuring out as I talked to more and more people is that some of them were doing YouTube as their job, which again, I know it sounds really naive, but that had never occurred to me. That was like a thing that people were full time YouTubers. What really changed my life at that conference was a couple of things. One, I met Tati Westbrook, who I don't know if that many of your listeners will know who she is, but at the time, at that moment in time, she had 340,000 subscribers. So I was just like in awe of her. I think she has close to 3 million now. I mean, she really blew up. And she and I chatted. She gave me some really good advice about just how to think about my channel, like really strategically. And I was just really blown away by her, especially because she was doing YouTube as a full-time thing. And I think whenever you're trying to do something that you don't know is possible, like meeting a real flesh person, like you can touch them who's done that. It just kind of like rocks your world because you're like, whoa. So she was hugely impactful. Like my conversation with her that day, I can still remember everything we talked about. And then the second person I talked to yeah, before we go to the second person, yeah, what did y'all talk about it? If it was such a life-changing moment, I'm just curious. She talked to me a lot about branding my content and the importance of, she was uploading at the time five days a week, which is really brutal. You know, that's a hard schedule. But she talked to me a lot about the importance of like how she branded different days and how she thought of different pieces of content kind of differently for different people in her audience and how she branded different days of the week. And it was a lot about like strategy and branding and posting, like really practical stuff. But again, my brain had never even really thought like that before. I was like, oh, I just put a yoga video out once a week. And so then the next person that I talked to a ton of people, but this other person I talked to, Jared Polin, his channel was very successful. They were both actually panelists there. So they were kind of there as like the inspiration for all us young creators. So somehow I got lucky and I ended up talking to both of them just kind of during the networking. Jared had a photography channel. He teaches people how to use DSLR cameras. He showed me and actually gave me, it was really nice of him, this DVD set that he had created about how to use DSLR cameras. Cause I was telling him I was struggling as a new YouTuber, you know, trying to figure out all the camera settings and all that stuff. And he like whipped out of his backpack or somewhere, I don't know, this like DVD box set that was like his guide to using a DSLR camera. I remember taking this and being like, wow. And I could just tell by the DVD 
box set, like how high quality a product it was. I mean, it was beautiful. I could tell that it was beautifully filmed just by like the pictures on the cover and everything. And what's a DVD? Yeah, I know. I'm like, <laughs> feel so old, right? But I asked him and he said, I think he also sold it as an online course or maybe he only sold it as a DVD pack, but we got to talking and he said, I sell this off my YouTube channel. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, you know, people listen to all my free tips about how to operate a DSLR camera, but then the ones who really want to know, take my course. And my course is this DVD pack. And I was like, wait, what? Again, it was like this aha moment that your audience on YouTube would buy stuff from you. That was also something that had never occurred to me. And so I asked him, I started asking him all these questions. I was like, how much did it take you to produce this DVD? Because I could tell that it was a multi-set DVD and I could tell it was really well put together, as I had said. I think he told me it cost him $10,000. And I was like, (laughs) you know, like that felt like so much money. And I was like, weren't you so scared to invest that much money filming something when you didn't know if anyone was going to buy it? And he was like, "Eh, maybe, but it's made me over a million dollars. So I feel fine now. That moment changed my life forever. I just couldn't believe it. I could not believe that he had this product. It was just him. You know, the DVD was just him and like the same as what he was doing on YouTube, but he'd made a million dollars selling it. And driving back from that conference, it was like everything had changed. Nothing was the same anymore. It was all of a sudden, I just felt all these possibilities opening up. It was like one of those surreal moments. And I remember that drive home so well, like pulling into, we weren't married at the time, but we were living together, like our apartment garage at the time. For me, like life was like before and after that moment that day. It was very inspiring. I mean, I could see that. There's so many people, you make it sound like you were naive, but I don't think you were because it's 2015. It's hard for you to know what you don't know, right? You knew how to do stuff with video games and you're like in that realm. And then you were just kind of doing YouTube still for fun, right? Up to this point. Mm Mm-hmm. So you really wouldn't know unless you, I guess you started YouTubing like how to make money on YouTube and then you came and found these people. And these people, as I looked up their YouTube channels, yeah, they're no joke as far as the Tati Westbrook. Yeah. How many does she have now? Guess and then I'll tell you. I think I looked at her recently because she actually moved to Seattle. So I'm like, I need to look her up and we need to hang out again. I think she has like 3 million, right? 9.5. (laughs) 9.5 Yeah. That's crazy. And what about Jared? How's he doing? He's at 1.2. 1.2. That's still insane too, by the way, people. It's just like I said her first, so it looks a little bit smaller, but you know, he's in the specialty camera space versus she's in like beauty. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, beauty. So I'm gonna get more people. But even with his DVD, it's amazing. You can see I could be put myself in your shoes and be like, okay, if I didn't know anything about that, you wouldn't really know how to make that into a business, I would think, right? You're just kind of doing it for fun still at that point, even though you're still trying to help people and whatnot. You don't have that business mindset of like how to monetize it still. Exactly. And so when you got home, is that when you just changed everything or how long did it take? Basically, I... You quit your job? (laughs) No, I mean, I'd love to tell you I was that brave. I wasn't. But something changed where for the first time ever, and for me, again, it wasn't even about the money because I love it. I was just like, what if I could do this as my job? I wasn't even like, I need to make a million dollars. It was just like, what if I could just do this instead of my current day job, you know, and make like semi as much or, you know, enough. What's semi as much? I mean, I was making six figures at the time. Or like 100 or 300? In my corporate gig. Yeah. <laughs> in between there? In between 100 and 300? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, because you're in the video game technology space too, right? So, I mean, I'm not naive to think you're not making anything. Plus, you live in San Francisco, so. Right, which was very expensive. Yeah, exactly. Was it still that expensive back then or no? At this time, it was. When I first got there, it was great. It was super cheap, but it changed very quickly. 
Yeah, as of today, yeah, I know it is. That's what I was curious. And I knew it was quick. So, all right. So, yeah, you're like, okay, if I can replace my income, maybe make 150 to 200K a year, you're like, that'd be your dream case scenario now that you've been evangelized to making money on YouTube? Yeah, I think my goal was to make like 60K. I think that was my initial goal because my husband and I were planning at that point to get married. We knew we wanted to have a family. So the dream kind of changed. Like the dream was, could I make 60 or if I was really lucky, like 80K a year and have this passion business that I loved and then be a mom basically, right? And then we had his income. So that was sort of the dream. What I started doing is just experimenting, trying everything I could of what I could sell. And I think one thing that I like to share is that I tried so many things that did not work. I mean, so many things. I tried selling a wedding course about yoga. My husband was actually cleaning up the site the other day and he found like these nine pages, one that included like a perfectly written sales page. Like I never even ended up launching it. I was just a crazy person. Like I just kept trying things. And I think this is what entrepreneurship is, right? It's like, you just don't give up. You just keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. One of the very early things I remember feeling somewhat successful about was I was trying to think of like what I could sell that was different from YouTube. You know, a lot of yoga uses props. I don't know, a lot of your listeners might not know this, like yoga blocks and bolsters and and different things that help support the postures. When I teach on YouTube, I never really used a lot of props because I didn't know what the viewer at home would have handy and I didn't want to alienate them. But I was like, oh, well, what if I created a series of videos that used all the props, but then I shipped them a prop kit with like a unique Jared Poland type DVD you know, my goal was to get a hundred people to buy this prop kit. It was like a course plus a kit, right? So it's like you get my five favorite yoga props. And then I also ship you all these videos on how I use them. And that was the first time I actually hired someone to help me professionally film something because I wanted those videos to be really premium. And I managed to sell a hundred for $1.99 each. That to me felt like a huge success at the time. I was very excited. In retrospect, that was not a good business model because I was like shipping all these boxes from my house and assembling all these kits and it was like a total nightmare. But it was the first little taste of like feeling like I tried something that worked instead of just paint on the wall. So what do you think about that group call? That was good. It's cool because you get to see what other people are doing. They're kind of in the same stage as me. Hopefully that was helpful. Definitely, yeah. Actually, a lot of stuff. The Upwork thing was very interesting. Well, I'd been kind of listening for a while. I did listen to your first Patreon call. And um, there's a couple guys in there that for what they did or what they were doing, it kind of intrigued me. And um, then I've heard a couple of the commercials or whatever that so-and-so was going to be on there. Clicked on your new episode the other day and I'm like, you know what? I'm here. I got to do this. It seems like it makes sense, but you're saying you would order these boxes and then you assemble them and then resend them out. So there's a lot more labor going into all this. Yes, exactly. Because the five props that were my five favorite, you know, they were all from different vendors. It wasn't like they like existed pre-packaged. Yes. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. The Brett Larkin prop special, I guess, or whatever. And then it seems like that made sense though. I mean, and it, I guess it's your first taste of real money, but can you walk us through some other things that didn't work? You said you tried doing wedding yoga. Yeah, I tried doing like a course for brides, preparing for it to like deal with the stress or something. Yeah, no, that tanked. It did not sell. That was the first thing I tried Facebook ads for and it totally didn't work. And I had a yoga for core and abs that tanked. That did not work. I mean, there was a lot. I had to finally put together a beginner course because that was a good thing to do. 
And that kind of did okay. I had a stretching course that didn't work. I mean, there was a lot, a lot of, I don't want to call it failure because I learned so much each time. Well, yeah. So what did you learn from those? It seems like the product thing was at least something physical and you had someone help you out with that. But I'm curious what you learned from those then. I think over the course of all this, I was really learning. And I think this is the biggest piece of advice that I can give to any entrepreneur is listen to what your students or clients are telling you. I started to get really good over time at engaging with my community and really asking them what they wanted. And the membership that was one of the first things that felt exciting. And there were that, you know, I did because other fitness friends in the YouTube industry that I had started making had membership sites. I read this thing about like a thousand true followers. Like if you just get a thousand people to pay you X bucks a month, like you could do what you love full time or whatever. So that was very exciting to me. The membership was a big first project. And then from the membership and creating the community had a community that kind of preceded the membership, like a free community, and then the community within the actual paid membership, people started telling me they wanted to take yoga teacher training online because they loved how I was breaking down the postures and inside the membership, I'd go really in depth into like alignment and asana with folks, have them send photos of what they looked like in the poses and then actually screen share with them and show them what I'd changed. Really detailed things that I don't think anyone was really doing at the time, or I don't even know if anyone does that now. I mean, that's how much I like to nerd out on yoga. And when people started asking for a teacher training, I thought that was really weird because I was like, why would people want to do that online? You know, because it's a 200 hour curriculum is what a yoga teacher training is. It just seemed a little crazy. So I didn't know if anyone would buy it, but I knew that if they would, it would be a game changer because yoga teacher trainings are quite expensive. And I thought that if I priced mine a little bit cheaper than what the going rate was, because it was like an online one that I might have a shot of making some more significant income than what YouTube and the membership were bringing in. The membership was growing, but it was slow. So, you know, another big scary moment was deciding that I was actually going to make the training and funding the training. I mean, I kind of like Jared Poland, like I paid 10 or $20,000 like myself out of pocket to have the training professionally filmed. I think I had pre-sold it. So I had been building hype and I think I had close to my target number of how many people I wanted. I had like half or something like that before I went into production. And then I remember one of the days on set in production, I hit like, I think it was 30 people or 20 people. I can't remember exactly that I really wanted where I was like, okay, I'm going to break even. Everything's going to be good. I had that sign up come through at some point when I was on set. And then I felt really like I breathed a huge sigh of relief. I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to get rich or anything. But I was like, okay, this isn't going to be a failure. Like I'm not going to be out 20 grand. Everything's going to at least break even or I'll make some profit. And so what year was that when you started really stepping up your game there? 2015. Oh, that was still all right when you came back from the YouTube conference, all this? Yeah, I just went crazy for like a year. Okay, well, yeah, because I was like, I imagine that in my head, I'm like, this must be a couple years down the line. No. But you're saying like within six months to a year of your epiphany, this is when you're still trying all these different things, like you're saying. Mm -hmm. I guess engaging with your audience, you know, people say that even people listening now, they're like, they've heard that advice, like I need to talk to my customer and stuff. But I feel like it's still hard to even get feedback from them, right? If you get feedback, that's great. But to me, like, it's still difficult. How are you able to do that? Was it just through an email list? Was it through looking on YouTube? Like what suggestions might you have for anyone who has any type of business to, you know, listen to their customer and be able to take that feedback and make their product better? What worked really well for me was my private Facebook group. 
this is back again. I had some, I don't even think I paid the mentor, some business mentors podcast I listened to was like talking about the importance of Facebook groups. So I started that very early, which was great because anytime I was wondering about a product I should make or what I should title something, I'd like just post in the Facebook group and be like, Hey, would you guys want this or that? right? So really easy way to start getting feedback. And then of course, people would post all sorts of things to me, like, why don't you make a teacher training online, things like that. But I think that everyone can listen to their customer, even the yoga teachers I work with now, who don't have a big social media following or anything like that yet, I tell them to just do discovery calls with their private clients or people who they think are like would be their ideal student and just ask them questions. So I really don't think there's any excuse for not being able to learn from your customer. I mean, even if you have to chase them a little bit and just be like, hey, would you do a discovery session with me? Or are you willing to talk to me for 20 minutes in exchange for like a free 20 minute yoga session or whatever? So I'm a huge, huge fan of that because you don't know what your customer's pain point is. They need to tell it to you. It's never what you think it is. Again, for me, like with the membership, it never occurred to me that people wanted structured training plans. I mean, that's the reason people join Uplifted is for the plans. That wasn't my idea. I mean, it was my idea in the sense that I figured out that's what people wanted, but like they told me. And again, it was through that Facebook group. So if anyone's making it saying it's difficult to talk to their customers, they're just making up excuses is basically what you're saying. I think so. Yes. Because if you don't have the Facebook group, again, you can do the discovery call or I tell some of my new teachers to interview even if it's like friends and family, right? Who are struggling with yoga or struggling with prenatal yoga or whatever their specialty is. Like you just need someone to really tell you their side of the story. And then going live for me was huge. As I said, I was going live on Periscope all the time. That's how I filled my first hundred members was by going live on Periscope because it was so fast and people would chat me so quickly. And like the questions I'd get were so illuminating, like how to do child's pose, which I think is so basic and everyone knows how to do. I'm just like, wait, what? <laughs> right. And then I'm like, okay, note to self next week, I'm making a video tutorial on that. And that's a hundred percent how I've done everything in the business. At the, you started off with basically zero followers and all this, right? Zero. Mm -hmm. Cause that's another excuse too, that I think people make. It's like, unless you get started at some point, you're not going to have anybody, right? So you started off with the YouTube, it sounded like you had up to 30,000 subscribers, but I don't know how many of them were actually on Periscope. But when you start a Periscope, you have zero, right? But it just kind of snowballs in. I feel like people start making excuses that I can't do it. It's too late to join Twitter or do anything. It's just like get on there, start searching and start asking people. Yes, I'm very action oriented. And this is why people in my trainings love coaching with me because I just have like a no tolerance policy for not taking action. I can tell. I mean, there's just so many ways you can take action now. There's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur with the entire internet available to us. Right. And you told me after this, I did this as a audio test before we got going. Sound like oh, that's what you're doing afterwards. And it sounds like you got meeting after meeting after meeting lined up here, huh? Yep. Yeah. So how do you stay so motivated? You know, because again, I'll jump back into this timeline if you don't mind. And after this, it sounds like you're super motivated, even though it's still a passion. I mean, other people have passion too, but I feel like especially if they're not getting paid for it, it could kind of let it go by the wayside. So I'm just wondering like how you stay organized and how you stay motivated to keep growing this. I think anytime I'm starting to feel discouraged or tired, or I mean, for me, it's been a big shift, especially this past year or two, going from kind of that solopreneur mindset to more of like a CEO and managing more people, because that's never really what I set out to do. I just love yoga, right? That has been something that 
I've been having to work on because so much of my day now is like managing a team, right? Or working on all the business stuff when really I just want to be teaching my trainings. There's been changes as I've gone on, but anytime I feel even the tiniest bit discouraged, I just start looking at our student testimonials and people's questions. And every day someone messages me through Instagram telling me that a class they did either on YouTube or the Uplifted membership, like made them cry. And in a good way or a bad way? In a good way, like in a way that created a huge shift or personal transformation for them, right? Or someone will say something in the Facebook groups of each of our trainings has its own Facebook group. Something about how taking the training changed their relationship with their spouse or their kid or is helping them live pain-free for the first time ever. I mean, it's like I start reading those things and then even if I'm like in the worst mood and so tired, I just get excited. For me, it's like about the impact and the healing. I consider myself a healer. That's what I teach in all my trainings that people coming to train with us are innate healers. It's like a part of my identity that I didn't feel comfortable talking about for years. I was like a secret healer. I was very worried about how that would be perceived. But now I know that like that is my calling. And some people do healing like hands-on with body work and massage and teaching in person. And just because of my unique skill set, this is the way I'm doing it. And it's so rewarding because of the impact. What's a healer? I mean, a healer is someone who helps someone else facilitate transformation and healing in their life. So I can become a healer? I mean, if you want to, Austin, <laughs> yes. I want to be a healer. Yes. You know, I think we all start like healing. I'm trying to heal people with their businesses, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think the best businesses are in the business of transformation, right? And personal growth. And that's very much where I feel uplifted lives. Right. So yeah, that's good. But I guess even see now how you have enough falling where you can find the positive things. But I'm wondering, again, maybe even in your first year or two, when you, you said you did it every week, right? I mean, early on, you didn't always have those comments. So I'm wondering if anyone else is kind of in the same way where they don't necessarily have that positive thing to look back on. Like what drove me sometimes was negativity, to be honest, you know, when I saw the negative comments, you know, it kind of fueled me. So was there anything else? Like, it sounds like you're so positive and motivated. It's just like anything that someone could learn from you, I think obviously awesome to help them stay motivated like you are today. At the beginning to me, I think what kept me motivated when I didn't have the community and I didn't have the following was it became like a game. I think meeting Tati and Frono's photo, Jared, I was just like, I met them and not just them, but so many other people at this YouTube conference who were making a full-time living. A lot of them were just making a full-time living on YouTube off ad revenue. You know, like I met a guy who teaches woodworking out of his garage in Marin and he does that full time. Like he teaches woodworking skills. Meeting all those people, that's why driving away from that conference was so powerful because I was like, if they can do it, I can do it. Well, perfect. I just knew that because I had met them all. I was like, if they can do it, I know I can do it. So even when I was really struggling the whole beginning, I was just like a dog with a bone. You know, I was just like, I'm going to make it work. I was just so focused because I knew it was possible. And I knew if it was possible for them, it was possible for me. And I just kept throwing ideas and funnels and emails and everything at the wall. Like I just try everything and anything. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel healed already. And I'm sure other people do right now listening. So 2015, once you came back, it seems like a full year, you're trying different stuff. You know, was that enough to make that 60,000 that you were kind of shooting for? Or just walk us through it, if you don't mind the last five years in chronological order here. Yeah. So I did the first teacher training and then another one, you know, I think that first one was a lot about recouping expenses, you know, and that kind of thing. And then at that point, I'd say 2016 on, it's just like everything just started growing. Membership started growing. The YouTube channel started growing. My email marketing abilities and skills started growing. 
the demand for the online training started growing. We were ranking number one in Google for online yoga teacher training. I didn't even know that. All of a sudden, just the trainings just kept getting bigger. Each time I'd run them, they'd be a little bigger. One time, this is another like one of those moments that's just seared in your life forever. At the end of the training, I think it was on the last call because I'm, I'm live with everyone a lot. Someone had said something in the chat, something like, Brad, I've loved the training, but I, I would have loved to know more about you personally and more about your story or something like that. And I was like, that's so weird because- <laughs> Was your husband? <laughs> no, I thought it was so weird because at that point I had assumed that everyone who was in the training was an Uplifted member or a YouTube student. And on YouTube and Uplifted, like I talk about myself and my life all the time. I mean, I'm an open book. And I also had a podcast at the time that was basically just me talking about yoga, but also my life. So I just thought that was such a weird thing for someone to say, because I had tons of podcasts about my story and you know my life and all this stuff. I assumed everyone was like sick of hearing about me because they were following YouTube and the podcast, potentially also in the membership for a long time. So when that person said that, I was like, wait, are people taking this training who don't know me? Like they sign up for the training because they're like looking for an online yoga teacher training, not because they know me. You know what I'm saying? And that was just like a very weird moment that I remember. And so I started looking around and I figured out and right away I started implementing like exit surveys. So asking people how they enjoyed the training, what was working, what wasn't working. I think I was already maybe doing that, but I added in a bunch of questions at the beginning about how they found the training, right? Like where did they come from? Were they familiar with me before they signed up? Yes or no. And what started becoming very clear was that, yes, a lot of people were taking the training because they knew me and they knew the YouTube channel and they knew the membership. But there was a whole other percentage of people who were just Googling online yoga teacher training and signing up, having no idea who I was. When was that, I guess, as far as calculating, as far as this second epiphany, if you will? Probably 2016, 2017, something like that. Okay. So had you quit your other job at this point? No, I still have Wow, jeez. I really wanted to quit. And I was telling my husband that I had to quit because, you know, once I started running the trainings, it was just too much. I know. Um, I had transitioned to working fully from home. So that gave me a ton of flexibility, but it wasn't working. I was overworked. And my husband and I were actually arguing about it because he was really worried. We were buying our first house and all this stuff. But once we bought the house, I said, okay, now I really want to quit. And he was like, okay, just. <laughs> you should have done that before. <laughs> I know. He was like, let's just make it to the end of the year, right? I think it was September or something. And then lo and behold, my job actually ended up laying me off in October. Wow. So I ended up getting some severance and it just was like everything came together at the right moment. I'm actually a little ashamed. Like I wish I had had the courage to just quit a little bit earlier, but you know, it still felt really scary. Like everything still felt really new and uncertain. This is like the biggest jump. I really honestly feel for any business person, I don't care where they are in their life right now. It's kind of like having the faith to take the first jump, you know, especially if you're getting a good paycheck. If you're getting a like, crappy paycheck and you didn't feel like you're being compensated fairly, then I think it'd be way easier. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> All right. So yeah, that's in the 2017 going into 2018. Yep. You're saying basically when that happened and just tell us about the growth over the last two years then. Yeah. So I feel like I've been on full time for more than two years. So maybe the job was 2016, I want to say. But yeah, then it's just growth. That's really all I can say. And just like getting better at everything we did making the membership better, making the YouTube videos better. The channel right now, I think has around 360,000 subscribers. 
So it's grown a lot from 30,000. I mean, there was a lot of figuring things out along that journey of the algorithm, the type of content. I'm still not an expert, but there's a lot that we figured out and got focused on. Well, can I pause you there? I'm just curious because I alluded to this earlier that you're really driven, it sounds like. So how many hours a week were you working? And then when you're trying to figure out these things in your membership, I guess I'm curious, like how you figure out, is there a certain week that you need to figure out your SEO and then a certain week you're doing whatever? Like, how are you dividing and conquering your time now that you can spend all your time on this? So I never had a structured approach. I divided up my time, although that's probably a good idea. My mind works in really only one way. It's like, what's going to drive the most impact and the most revenue? And I do that first before everything else. So I just kind of tick off my to-do list even now. I mean, that's the way my to-do list works, right? It's like, what's impacting growth and our impact and the revenue? And those are the tasks that I do first. Those might be different tasks day to day, but I always put everything through that filter. Can you give us examples of that? Because I think, again, people can struggle because that's always what you should be looking at. I think like every business owner, right? Like what's going to drive either growth or what's going to drive revenue. And they don't always go together, but generally they do. So can you give us examples of like, maybe one day you're like, oh, I need to make my website look prettier, right? But then you're like, is it going to drive growth or revenue? And you're like, okay, maybe I'm not. Right. Yeah, exactly. For me, a lot of it has to do with writing emails and putting myself out there. So doing like my connect with my customers daily activities. Right now I have a team that's helping me with all of that, which is wonderful. But at the beginning when it was just me, it was like, you know, very early on, it was like, I have to go live every day. It was like, go live, post to Facebook, share the YouTube video, send an email, like all those outward facing activities. I got really disciplined at being like, I have to do those first before I do other things. And again, as I've grown, this is somewhat become a problem because my crazy focus on working in this way has meant that lots of things I should have done, like, you know, setting up my taxes properly or like QuickBooks or like, I never did any of that. Right. So, you know, once you reach a certain size, you need to, and that's why I'm so happy and lucky now that I have my husband because he takes care of a lot of that. But yeah, I think a lot of things that people think are important actually aren't as important as I think most of what I just described was interacting with your customer every day. Were you disciplined in like waking up at a certain time and going to bed at a certain time? It sounded like, again, you were disciplined, at least in your mind of these interactions, you got to get in front of these people. But yeah, how about going to sleep and waking up, etc.? You know, back then, I don't think I was as disciplined as I am now. I mean, now I'm like insanely disciplined because if I don't get up before my kid, my yoga practice in the morning doesn't happen. Right. So now it's like, now I am that person where I have to get up at a certain time. I'm in bed by a certain time. Everything's very regimented. But back then, you know, because I didn't have kids and life was so much simpler. I don't think I was so regimented with wake up and bedtime, but I would not rest like until my key marketing or my key client facing, student facing activities for the day were done. It was like a mentor of mine said like she didn't let herself shower until those activities were done. And she really likes to shower and be clean. I don't know if I took it to that extreme that she did, but I was very disciplined. Well, hopefully she was an online teacher too then, huh? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what time's early and late now for you? These are things I haven't asked in a while. And I think sometimes they help, especially like you said, you have a kid, so I feel like it's harder and you have to worry about your time more. So what time is early for you waking up? 5.30. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's not that early. I think it's still, it depends person to person, you know? Yeah. If you're single, like especially sometimes that's early and sometimes that's late, depending on each person. And then right, what time are you ending a work day now? 
a lot of what I have to work on is not working because my problem is I love it and I would work all day, every day if I were allowed to. And obviously my husband doesn't like that so much. So a lot of what I actually have to do is set up rules around shutting down at the end of the day. So one of the things I have worked on with my coach is that like no work after 7 p.m. ever, which is really hard for me because I always want to keep working. And I'm like, oh, I can just edit a video or like look at some footage or something. But I've had to really get disciplined with myself that after 7 p.m., it's like no more. It's family time. And then same in the morning, like not getting online or looking at work. I don't really start working till 10 a.m., although I do let myself look at Slack and kind of check in with my team at 9 a.m. So the mornings are also like really family time. Okay. Yeah. Again, it's like working in those disciplines. I think sometimes that gets rushed under the rug. We just talk about your timeline. And then if we forget about these other things in life, because there are things other than business in life, right? That it helps us recenter of like recalibrate and heal ourselves, if you will. Right. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to make sure to talk about on the show was just being a female entrepreneur. It's very different. I think if you're a man, it's like expected that, oh, well, you'll put in late hours and someone like a wife will you know, do all the other things that need to be done. But when you're a woman, you really don't have that luxury. I have such a supportive partner and I'm really lucky, but he grew up with a stay-at-home mom and like everything is being negotiated in a new way, in a way that I think is especially challenging for women. And if you don't set up those boundaries and that time, I think that's why we see less female entrepreneurs, right? You really need to be able to stand up for yourself. And that's also been something that I've had to kind of learn and figure out as I go, setting up support structures, setting up help in the house so that I can do what I need to do. Well, do you also have support structures outside the house? I mean, I heard something you talked about a coach earlier, but it sounds like, I don't know if that helps you as well. Yeah. I know you said you had some, maybe some notes. I want to make sure we hit all your points before we get off the interview here. Yeah, I haven't always had a coach, but I have always had like key mentors at critical places in my journey. And sometimes they're someone who I just paid to speak to once or someone who I was just listening to all their free stuff, like kind of binging through their free stuff. But there also have been some coaches and people who really impacted my whole life. The Handel Method is it's like a life coaching company, but their process was extremely helpful to me. I had a coach very early on who was kind of like a friend who really helped me like draw a vision for the business back in even 2013, where writing it up felt silly. And now I work with a coach once a month. And a lot of what we're doing is talking about both the business, but also family life and how I can find that balance and set up rules for myself. So I'm succeeding in all the areas of my life that I care about. What method did you actually reference there? It's called the Handel Method. So H-A-N-D-E-L. And you're saying that's kind of helped you? Yes. Highly recommend. All right. It seems like you had a life-changing moment in 2015, right? And then another one, maybe 2017, as far as where you got through. But I mean, what's been the hardest part about actually making all this happen? Ooh, the hardest part. I think probably the hardest part is that you're just always uncomfortable in some way. I mean, doing this kind of work it pushes you out of your comfort zone on a daily basis. I think a lot of people, when they start this journey, they're like, oh, I'm going to get to X, Y, or Z place and feel like I made it and feel comfortable and feel relaxed. That just doesn't really happen. You just get newer, bigger, different problems every single stage. I do think it gets easier because you just get more seasoned when you're like, oh, I'm feeling this discomfort or anxiety again about, I mean, it's still scary for me to invest certain amounts of money in the business or like there's still things that feel frightening. And I think, you know, I've just made my peace with that. Like that's what this path is. It's constantly like living in bed with your demons and your biggest fears. 
to me, it's worth it because of the, A, the, the impact that the company is creating. And I think the impact we have for our students and B, I think it's, I really want to be a role model for what's possible for people and especially women and especially yoga teachers for like what they can accomplish. So those are the two things that make it worth it. Well, thank you for coming on, Brett, and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. If someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you? Info at brettlarkin.com. All right. Well, thanks again, Brett. Flash forward to 2009, and I'm back in the golf business as a club pro, and I get a message on my MySpace page from a 14-year-old kid in Mexico claiming that I was his father. You know, he says I impregnated his mom in the champagne room at a club in Cozumel on New Year's Eve in 1998. And I immediately called bullshit because I remember that night vividly. And there were at least five other guys with me uh, that were also prime candidates. So I have to go down there as part of a paternity hearing. And the night before I have to testify. So if you want to hear more interesting stories just like this preview... Well, become a Patreon member today. You know you're missing out. Just check the link in your episode description below to join the club or go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you in the membership forum.